You are listening to the Manifesting God podcast with your host, Marie Elizabeth. This podcast will uplift and thrust you into the manifestation of the promises of God in your life. Good evening, good evening. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Thank you so much for joining today. Today is the first Monday of the New Year. Happy New Year. Can you believe it? God has kept us. He kept his word. God has kept us another year. God has kept us. Today, I want you to get to Job. Get to Job. There is a word from the Lord. Get to Job five. God is still speaking. He's still guiding our footsteps so that our foot will not slip. Our foot will not slip. Our footing will not slip because he grips us and he's holding us in place. God is doing marvelous things. He's doing marvelous things and he wants to share them with us, with the people of God. He wants us to know what he is doing. He will not do anything in the earth realm unless he first reveals it to his prophets. God is speaking. God is speaking. We're going to go to Job Five And see, let me just give you a little bit of background here, as I always do, because I want us to be on the same page. Job's story, his story is one that should be told to those that suffer in God, who are like Job, who are struggling with the crisis of faith that was bought on by prolonged bitter suffering. Job, he sits close to his suffering. He is right in the core of his suffering. And he has learned what the theologians of his day have been saying about the ways of God and what brings on suffering. And he lets their voices be heard. He lets it be heard. And he knows that. He knows that the godly sufferers of his day, they have also heard and understood the wisdom of God in suffering. And they have learned and they have internalized it as the wisdom of the ages. But he also knows, he also knows because he's experienced it, the miserable comfort, the miserable comfort that's spoken of in Job 16 and 2, that so-called wisdom gives while you're suffering. It feels it feels as salt is being rubbed into a womb. It creates a stumbling block for faith because of the frame of mind of the sufferer. But Job has a story to tell, and his story challenges the very, the very core of suffering at its roots and it speaks to the struggling faith of the sufferer. In fact, Job, he says the godly sufferer can forget, 
can in the middle of suffering forget the logical arguments of the theologians by those who sit together at their ease and discuss the ways of God. They forget those voices during the time of suffering in their own heart. They are, there's nothing, it's nothing with the theologians, with those with wisdom are saying it's nothing more than an echo. It's nothing more than an echo as, as Job uh, references, as he tells his story in this book. See, when people, when people who fear God and they shun evil, when those people, those godly people, when they suffer the human struggles, they, they, they under, they don't quite understand what is happening right in that moment, right in that moment. History, history even tells us that most as most have asked how can this be especially especially when god is silent the question becomes with suffering in suffering how can this be if god is almighty if he holds the whole world in his hand if he if he god is truly good how can he allow some of these inhumane things to actually happen? How can he allow them to happen? Is God truly just or, or is he not? Is he, is he a one that rescues the faithful or is he not? And if he is not, are human, is humanity innocent? Are they, are they, can they be held completely innocent while in the midst of suffering can all suffering can all suffering be measured by one sin uh in the eyes of god or 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 as we're going to read is elihu's summary of who god is correct in every situation in every circumstance, no matter, no matter what we may be suffering, no matter what we may be going through, no matter how or what our frame of mind may be, is God correct in every situation? Is his truth, is his truth as manifested in our situation, can it still be seen? Is God still speaking in the midst of trial and tribulation? And you're asking yourself, why this new year when when we have the, the governments of the world going through transition, when we have um, still are dealing with COVID, why, why, are, why, why is the prophetess, why is Marie not talking about the blessings of the Lord that are soon to come? Why not? We're going to get to that because we need to understand what God is truly doing if we are to truly walk with him, if we are to allow him to guide guide us, if we're going to give him permission in our situation to act, if we're going to be able to see him in the suffering circumstances, if we're going to be able to see him in the circumstances, suffering circumstances, we cannot be deceived in what God is doing right now, right now. Job 5 and 11, the English Standard Version, it says, and this is Elihu talking to Job, 
it says, he sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn, they're lifted to safety. Verse 12 says, he frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He's talking about God here. Verse 13, he catches the wise in their own craftiness and the schemes of the wily are bought to a quick end. They're bought to a quick end. They met, they're met with darkness in the daytime and grope their and grope on in the, at the noonday as in the night. But but they are met with darkness in the daytime and grope in the noonday as in the night. And verse 15 says, He saves the needy from the sword of their mouth and from the hand of the mighty. So the poor, the poor have hope. The poor have hope and injustice shuts their mouth. Injustice shuts their mouth. Elihu is talking to Job. Job is in the core in the in the crevices of his suffering of his suffering and here comes Elihu and he says that he God sets on high those who are lowly and he and he um and those who mourn he lifts them to safety so wh whatever situation or circumstance we find ourselves in that causes us to mourn God lifts us to the safe place and verse 12 he frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. We see what's happening in the world today. The inhumane way that folks of different race, creed, colors are treated, are treated, but the devices, the devices of the crafty are going to, God is frustrating them. If you notice their devices do not yield anything. They do not manifest what they intended for their devices to manifest. They achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness. So you think you know, you think you're able to manipulate, you think you're able to control, but instead your own craftiness consumes you. It takes over you and the schemes of the wily, your schemes, they're brought to a quick end. They're shut down quickly. They're sh God is shutting them down quickly. They're, they meet with darkness, verse 14 says, in the daytime and grope in the new noonday as the night, feeling their way, feeling their way, the mischievous, the evil, they're feeling their way because their God has put such a shadow of darkness over them that they're unable to see their way clear. They're groping as one that gropes in the night, trying, trying, trying to execute their own craftiness and their schemes that God is bringing to a quick end verse 15 says but he saves the needy from the sword of their mouth he saves those in need from the sword of the enemy's mouth he saves the needy from the sword of the enemy's mouth and from the hand of those that are mightier than they. So the poor do have hope. And that's not just poor in finances. That is poor as in at the bottom. That is poor as in position by the world. They're, those poor, they have hope. 
and injustice shuts her mouth. See, Eli, whose point here is that God cares for man. He constantly sustains him by the abundant flow of his spirit. Although that was not the point that Eli, who was attempting to make, it held true that God's spirit in the book of Job is, in fact, the creator and sustainer of life. God's, God's spirit in the book of Job is indeed the creator. It's the creator and it is the sustainer of life. It's the sustainer of life. See, it is Elihu's point. It's his point that I submit for our discussion today for a topic that I am entitling a sustained society. A sustained society. Do we understand? I'm going to continue and I'm going to break this down for us. We are talking about a sustained society. See, it is, see, um, sustained. Let's talk about that word for a minute. That is the Hebrew word, kamak. At that word, it means to lean, to lay, to rest to put, to uphold, to lean upon, to lean upon as in Genesis 20, uh, 27 and 37, where it says, and Isaac answered and said to Esau, behold, I have made him thy Lord and all his brethren have I given to him for servants and with corn and wine, uh, momentum, we recognize that corn and wine, go back, listen to Apostle Kent's alive, Go back. I'm not going to reteach it. With corn and wine, I have sustained him. And what shall I do now unto thee, my son? With corn and wine, I've given him. I've given him what he needs to lean upon. I've given him what he needs to rest upon. Psalms 3 and 5, it says, I laid me down to sleep. I laid me down to sleep. I awakened for the Lord sustained me. He kept me while I was asleep. He caused me to lean into him while I was asleep. He caused me to rest in him while I was asleep. Isaiah 59 and 16, it says, and he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his arm brought salvation unto him and his righteousness. It sustained him. It gave Christ a place to rest. It gave him a place to to rest. Now let's talk about that word society because we're talking about a sustained society. Now the word society, the word itself is not in the scriptures, nor do the scriptures articulate any systematic definition of human social order. The terms that imply society are those terms that relate to nation or nations. 
people or peoples, Jews or Gentiles, Jews and Greeks, people of the East in Genesis 29 and 1, rulers of the North in Daniel 11 and 6, and of the South in Daniel 11 and 5, and in Matthew 12 and 42. See, the, see when you're speaking of society, the relation of the individual to society, and remember we're in Job 5 and we're talking about a sustained society, the relation to the individual to the society is noted differently differently throughout the history of Israel, such as marriage, Deuteronomy 25 and 5 and 6, Luke 20 and 28, which suggests a solidarity of family life. While the parent-child relationship in Exodus 20 and 12, it stresses the role of the home as the primary unit of society. Now, at the same time, the congregation of the Lord in Deuteronomy 23 and 1, 2, and 3, and 8 can be considered as an entity possessing a unity or a society of its own. So when we think about the word society, when we think about the word society, so society, and this is my definition, can be understood as a nation unified by the same belief and the same faith. Society can be understood as a nation unified by the same belief and the same faith. And remember, I just broke the word nation down from the point of an individual in marriage, from a family life, from a parent-child relationship, from the home, from the from a congregation, from an entity. Society, therefore, can be understood as a nation unified by the same belief, even down to the micro level. level. Let me repeat that, even down to the micro level, micro level, as a representative of the whole, as a representative of the whole, the nation, Job's story is about an individual's relationship with God, an individual's faith in God, the detail of his circumstances serve primarily to underscore the extent, the extent of his faith in God and God's faithfulness to him. Again, the question is why prophetess are we talking about the suffering way? What did we just come through last year? We came through a way that we'd not seen before, a suffering way that we'd not seen before. And God kept us through that suffering way. Remember our last conversation at the end of December was that we should write that vision and that we should make it plain what God did. How did God keep us through the struggles of the year? And we should write that vision, not only as a reminder to ourselves, but so that others can read it and know the God of the sacrifice, the God of the struggle, the God 
of the suffering way and know that God will, he will indeed deliver. God will indeed deliver. See, Job's story is a revelation of the power and the integrity and the triumph of faith in the face of guess what? Unanswered questions. That was us last year. Lots of unanswered questions. Lots of unanswered questions. And Job here is giving us a revelation. We're walking through with Job, just his revelation of the power of God, the integrity of God, the triumph of God in our faith, in our faith. And guess what? There's only more. There's only more to come. So you have to know that you are of the what society you are of in order to be able, in order to be able to grasp the revelation, the revelation, the power of integrity and the triumph of faith that God walks us through as we suffer as we suffer into that sustained society, that sustained society. Now, Job's story, in Job's story, Job was visited by three friends during his period of suffering, his period of despair. There was Eliaphaz the Temanite, there was Bildad the Shunite, Shuhite, there was so far the Namathite and who, and these three friends of his, they sat with him for seven days in silence. And then three conversations began to happen between Job and Eliaphaz, Job and Bildad and Job and so far. And these were followed by a challenge from a fourth friend, Elihu. And that's who we're talking about. We're talking about Eli, whose portion, his contribution to this conversation, his contribution to Job while Job was in a place of suffering, his reminder to Job of who God was. The four men, they are seeking to answer the question unbeknownst to them. They are trying to answer the question, why is Job suffering? Why is Job suffering? And it's important to understand that each person is responding to Job in their own context. They're each responding, they're each responding to Job out of their own context. See, Eliaphaz, he's he's basing his answer on experience. He states that Job is suffering because Job has sinned. So this is his context. He argues that those who are who sin, they're punished. And since Job is suffering, obviously he must have sinned. That is his context. And then you have Bildad who's resting his authority on tradition. He is resting, his context is within the tradition at that time. And he suggests that Job is a hypocrite. He suggests that, you know, his, his approach is more of an inferential approach. And he says that since trouble has come to Job, Job must have sinned. And he says, quote unquote, if you were pure and upright, surely now he would awaken for you. And then so far, so far he condemns Job. 
He condemns Job for his presumption, for his sinfulness, for his verbosity. He concludes that Job is getting less than what he deserves. He concludes that Job deserves even more suffering. Know therefore that God exacts from you less than your iniquity deserves, is what he says in, in chapter 11 and verse 6. See, they each to their own ignorance make the assumption that people, they're making an assumption that people can comprehend the ways of God without considering that retribution and blessings extend beyond what is now. Retribution and blessings, they extend beyond what is now. They hurt more than they help Job. These three people, they hurt more than they help Job. They, they see Job understands that godly and the un, the godly and the ungodly, they suffer alike and they enjoy prosperity alike. Not just somebody who's guilty of disobedience to God's will. He's not saying that just somebody that's obedient, disobedient to God's will is going to suffer. But yet that's what he's being told each in their own context are speaking to Job and lending their opinion as to why Job is dealing with what Job is dealing with. But we understand from earlier scriptures that it was Satan who sought to tempt Job, to get Job to, to, to walk away from God and God removed the hedge so that Satan could try Job and God could be proven as the true and the living God, that, that Job himself would not be moved through different trials and tribulations or through circumstances. But what ended up happening, Job was somewhat shook. While he was not shook by their words, he was shook by his circumstances. Like many of us today, he was shook by his circumstances because he couldn't justify them. He couldn't think of an explanation as to why he should suffer. He was an upright man that loved God, prayed daily, did everything he did. He even prayed for his loved ones that he thought might have sinned. He was an upright man before God. So he couldn't even justify his suffering. Much like most of us today, we can't always justify our suffering. Yes, we can blame. Yes, we can try to shift the blame, but we can't justify it. Sometimes we're not willing to accept our portion in it, but we can't always justify it. In Job's particular case, he actually couldn't justify it. He had done nothing to actually deserve what God had allowed to happen to him. But, but he knew God to be a sovereign God. He had enough sense to know that God is not unjust. God is not unjust. And see, I, Elihu's argument was this. God is greater. God is greater than any human being. His argument was simple. He argued for Christ. He argued for Christ. He said, God is greater than any human being. Therefore, a person has no right, <coughs> no right or authority to require God to explain himself to them. See, he made his point. 
He said, God doesn't owe us any type of explanation. Just like it was true then, it's true today. He also said, some things that God does are humanly incomprehensible. <clears throat> so what he was saying was, be, be, be okay with not understanding everything. Be okay with not understanding everything because God does not owe us an explanation. He doesn't owe us an explanation for what he does. He also suggests, and we're talking about Elihu when he's talking to Job, he also suggests that God will speak if we will listen. <clears throat> God will speak <clears throat> if we will listen. And I say he does speak. We're not always listening. I was telling my husband earlier when I went to Eastern University, I had these two professors that were teaching us one class. And these two professors were co-pastors. They each had their own spouses, but they were co-pastoring one church in Lancaster. They were co-pastoring one church in Lancaster. <clears throat> and... Um, they took us through exercises when we would go through residency, we would, at the start of class, every teacher always opened with prayer, but their particular opening was to sit in silence. They would have us sit in silence. And when we would have residency, we'd be there for three days. So we might have those particular instructors, each one for a day. So we had them the whole day. And so what they would cause us to do is sit in silence for the first 30 to 45 minutes of class. Just sit in silence. <clears throat> Close our eyes and so we wouldn't be distracted by what we see and sit in silence. And what they were trying to teach us was how to hear God in every situation and in every circumstance. So we had to sit there in silence because, and what I found is, is that it took time to silence the mind because I'm analytical and because I'm always thinking. So it took time and I wasn't the only one in the class. It took time to silence the mind to silence the mind. And just when you thought the mind was silent, you would think of something else. And then you had to start the process all over again. And what I found is after going through this exercise for a whole semester, I had learned to get to, to get to the quiet voice of God quicker, quicker. So I started off and it might take me 30 minutes, 45 minutes, you know, 40 minutes to silence my mind, to finally hear God speaking. And then I got to the point where it took me five minutes. Now I'm to the point if I get quiet, I can immediately shut everything down and I can hear the small, the still small voice of God. And when I would hear the still small voice of God, I heard the audible voice of God, but it was very still and it was very quiet. It was very quiet. It was much like God is greater than any human being. Therefore, a person has no right or authority to require an explanation of God. Now, what I just said, you probably barely heard. You probably barely heard it. Imagine trying to get your mind that quiet to hear something. 
So you have to quiet your mind to hear, shut out the world, all that's happening, all that's going on so that you can actually hear what God is saying above the noise, above the situation, above the circumstance, above the suffering, because God is always speaking. Our, our voices in our mind, our conversations, the world, the noise that the world generates will keep us from hearing the voice of God. And with Elihu, the core of his message was instead that Job should learn from his suffering and that Job has the same attitude toward God as the ungodly does when he's questioning God or when he's demanding answers from God or when he's telling God how to handle him because he felt like just I just ought to die right now. I just, I just don't want to be bothered with this right now. Throughout all his complaints, through his suffering, what Elihu was trying to tell him, if you quiet yourself, there's something that you can learn from your suffering. Because if we don't learn to quiet ourselves so that we can hear the instruction of God, we have now put, put ourselves in the position, the same position as the ungodly. Now we're trying to solve our issue ourselves, or better yet, now we're trying to make demands of God. We're trying to tell God how he should answer us. We're demanding of him that he do something. So many times, so many times we get twisted with the scripture when Isaiah says, command ye me, we get twisted with that. And we think we can tell God something when in fact, God was speaking to Isaiah in that scripture. And he was explaining to Isaiah why he chose who he chose to be the liberator or the provider for Israel as they went free and went out to rebuild. He, God was literally saying, you think you can command me? You think you can tell me who to choose? I, I know that King Cyrus doesn't know me. I know that he's never sought to serve me, but I choose him to write this etiquette. I choose him to make sure that this etiquette is executed so that my people will have what they need to rebuild. See, we get confused sometimes in our, in our struggle, in our suffering, and we think that we can dictate to God. We think that we can dictate to God our, our expectations. He says that we can ask, we can ask, we can ask whatsoever we will. We, we can ask, we can ask. And to ask something requires a humble approach. To ask God anything, to ask anyone anything requires a humble approach if you'd like an answer. If you'd like an honest answer. If you want an honest answer, see Elihu's appeal to Job is simply this, have faith in God himself rather than demand an explanation. Just have faith, just execute your faith. He's already promised us that all things today, we understand that all things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. Those who, those of us who love him, we understand that today. So we know no matter what happens, it's going to work for our good. 
It's going to work for our good. So we have no need to demand an explanation of God, of his actions, lest, lest he take his breath back and we stand before him and then he can explain it then. Lest we're that honorary with the breath that he's given us to demand of him. We take the breath that God has given us and make demands of the breath giver with the breath he's given us. How crazy is that? How crazy is that? How disrespectful, how disrespectful of that, of us, is it to ask God to make demands of him? Eli, who also wanted to appeal to Job to change his attitude to one of humility. Because he's trying to tell Job if a humility, a humi a, an approach to God of humility, if you're going to ask, you can ask. God gives us permission. We can ask God anything we want. We can ask God anything we want, but it requires a humility. It requires humility in our approach, in our approach. It requires humility in our approach. See, when the four, when they concluded, God answers Job, when they finished all their, all their dissertations, the four, and remember we're focusing on Elihu, when, when they finished their approach, then God answered Job. And when he answered him, he came through like a whirlwind. His response does not attempt to explain Job's suffering. So he still didn't explain Job's suffering, but instead Job's response caused God to begin a series of interrogations as a means of humbling Job. See, God's interrogation to Job, it helps us to understand that we're not meant to understand or we're not, we're not entitled to an explanation of our suffering. See, there's some things about human suffering that God could never explain to us. We would never understand. We would never understand. He cannot explain it to us in the moment without destroying its purpose. He would he can't explain it to us without messing up what the suffering was designed to teach us. Sometimes we're not going to know what we think we should know until the suffering has concluded. And until we pause to examine the suffering to understand what the lesson is in the suffering. What was I supposed to get out of suffering? Let me give you a little sidebar here. If you, if you can manage to learn to um, examine the suffering and look for the lessons in your suffering, it would be a whole lot easier for you to forgive if you would learn to examine your suffering and look for the lesson in your suffering, it'd be a whole lot easier to forgive because you wouldn't be so quick and so easy to place the blame on because uh, in Joseph's case, in Joseph's case, because you got dropped into the pit, you wouldn't be so quick. You wouldn't be so quick to place, to place a blame. You be, it'd be easier for you to give. Joseph said, don't worry about it. God did that so that I could save many alive. He, he caused me to be dropped in that pit, put, pulled out, put in 
um, to get to Potiphar's house, get to prison, get to Potiphar's house, get back in prison, come back out again, just so I could save you. He sent me ahead just so I could save you. So if you could just, if you could, and he forgave them. Now he didn't forgive them without scaring the almost life out of them. Trust me, Joseph played a little get back. He played a little get back. He dropped a little silver in their thing, dropped some money in there. Then they had to travel a long way. They had to live with that fear of returning when they got hungry a long time. They had a journey to take to get back to them. So he played a little get back, but he forgave them. He ultimately forgave them because he understood the purpose. He understood the purpose of his suffering. And if you understand the purpose of your suffering, it's a whole lot easier to forgive. It's a whole lot easier to be, it's a whole lot easier to not hold a grudge when you for when you look at what did i learn out of that but what did i learn out of that it's a whole lot easier don't make it so hard on yourself don't make it so hard on yourself be willing to stop and examine what's happening to me right now how's it making me feel should i feel that way what what is god trying to work out of me through this why I have to, I'm, I'm the remnant. I have to rebuild. I'm the remnant. What is God trying to, trying to teach me? Is he trying to teach me to focus? Is he trying to teach me to not be so easily distracted with everything that's happening around me? Is he trying to teach me discipline? Maybe I can't watch everything on TV. Maybe I can't do everything that everyone else is doing. Maybe I don't need to, to shop right now. Do I have a shopping addiction? Am I having a break because I can't? go to the mall. Maybe God is trying to teach me discipline with my finances. Maybe he's trying to do that for me. See, if we, if we, if we, if we, if we focus on the lesson, it will be a whole lot easier, a whole lot easier to forgive. Another thing that God is teaching through his integration to Job is that God is indeed involved in humanity's affairs. God is indeed involved. He said that he cared. We could cast our cares on him because he does care for us. In order for him to care for us, he has to be involved. He has to be involved with the affairs of humanity. See, Job and his grief, that meant enough to God. When Job started to demand explanations, even though when God answered, he didn't answer, he didn't give Job an explanation, he still showed up. He still spoke because he wanted to grab Job before Job got too far out there. See, God's not going to let us get so far out there that he can't rescue us. He's not, he's going to rescue us from ourselves. Why? Because he swore by himself. His covenant, he swore by himself. His covenant can't fail. His promises can't fail. So he will rescue us from ourselves. He will rescue us from ourselves. In Job's case, his purpose, God's purpose was to bring Job to the end of his own self-righteousness that Job didn't even know that he had until he went through that suffering. God's goal was to bring, um, to bring Job through self, excuse me, through self-vindication. 
that Job didn't even know that he had. God's, God's interrogation was to bring Job through his own self-wisdom. That Job didn't even know that he had. How many of us today, when we're going through trials and tribulations, we can't understand why because we can't believe that God would allow us to go through it. That's our self-righteousness. That we can't believe that God would dare have us to go through that kind of suffering. That God would dare have us to deal with something like that. But Job was self-righteous. He not known that until he went through the suffering, until God interrogated him. He didn't know that he had self-vindication. He didn't know that he was always trying to push, to, to explain himself. He didn't know that he was one that would always try to justify himself. And if you, what he doesn't, what he, what you don't understand is if you're in a trial or tribulation and you're always the, always the one that's right, the other person, the other person can't possibly be right. Then you're Mr. Or Mrs. Self-righteous. If you're the person that, that is always trying to prove that you're right, you can't possibly be wrong. Self-vindication, ma'am, sir. That's self-vindication, self-wisdom. You always know the other, the other people talking are always wrong. So you have self-wisdom and you, and you didn't know that or won't know that until you go to the, through a suffering period and you're always trying to justify, vindicate yourself. You're always trying to say, you know better, you know more than the person, whomever you're in the argument with, whoever you're in the struggle with, whoever you're in the suffering way with. When you're always trying to shift the blame. See, I submit that Job didn't know these things. Job didn't know these things about himself. This was a man that lived upright before God. He lived upright before God as well as he knew how. He lived upright before God. But God through, he took, he took Satan's challenge. He took Satan's challenge. God took Satan's challenge and used it to mature Job. Did I not say earlier that all things work together for our good? So we concentrate so much on what Satan is doing during our suffering that we're not paying attention to what God is doing through our suffering. We're not paying attention to it. And it's necessary that we pay attention to what God is doing for, through our suffering if we are to be a part of the sustained society. Part of being that part of being a part of the sustained society means we understand that we can lean into Christ. We can lean into Christ because society, our relationship is with him. We lean into Christ during our suffering because our relationship with, is with him and we trust him and we trust him. We trust him. See, a lot of times we don't want to trust God in the suffering way. We, we'd rather trust the enemy. What, what do I mean we'd rather trust the enemy? Well, our focus is on him. Our focus is on the enemy and what the enemy is doing. 
We're pointing out everything that the enemy is doing. The enemy, we're pointing, we're pointing out his, his, his disruption in our lives. And we're completely missing what God is trying to teach us. We're completely missing what God is trying to show us about ourselves. See, the book of Job, it teaches us several lessons, so many lessons. It teaches us, number one, that God is sovereign, that we can't understand his, his work is by rational thinking alone. It's going to take faith. God is indeed sovereign, and there's no way we can understand him on our own. Our faith has to rest in God's love and our knowledge of him. Sovereignty means that God is all powerful. He knows all. He's everywhere. He's ever present. And his decision is final. Jeremiah 4 and 8, Daniel 4 and 17. God is the author of all power in the universe. There is nothing that's happening that's happening without God's permission. And we have to trust God in order to be a member, a part of the body, of the sustained, the sustained society. We must activate our faith and, 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 and let that faith trickle into our understanding, our understanding. We, uh, this, this book also teaches us that we understand ourselves and our lives in direct relationship to our understanding of the character and the working of God. Again, we must understand ourselves. We must understand our lives as it relates to the character and the workings of God. The two, the two, with God being all powerful and all knowing, we have to submit ourselves and our lives to our relationship, to our relationship that's intertwined with the character and the workings of the workings. Let me say it again, the workings of God. See, when we understand that God's will. God's will towards us is good, John 10 and 10, that God cares and communicates his caring to us, his children, just as he did to Job, that changes everything. That changes everything. It gives faith a resting place. It gives faith somewhere to lay. It gives faith something to lean on. It gives faith something to lean on when deep suffering, when deep suffering, when it threatens the foundations of our faith, just like it did with Job, it assaulted his faith. It can destroy us if we're not rooted in the truth. There are people throughout this pandemic, there are people because of the actions of the government that are walking away from God. As they say in a joking manner, they're losing their Jesus. They're just losing their Jesus over, over what's happening around them. Their faith has no place which it can lay. Their faith has no place in which it can rest. It has no place. See, in times of tragedy, and we do this so often, in times of tragedy, we must not make God our adversary. Do not make God your adversary in the times of tragedy. Do not do that. He is your advocate. Do not make him the enemy. 
Do not make him the enemy that you're demanding things of him, that you're demanding an explanation of him, that you're telling him what you're tired of, what you're no longer going to do deal with. Do not make Christ, excuse me, your adversary in times, in times of tragedy or in times of struggle. Do not make him your adversary. He is your advocate today, tomorrow, and yesterday. Let your, give your, and let your faith rest. Let it rest in that truth. See, much like Job, we tend to focus on vindicating ourselves when we go through trials and tribulations. What it looks like, it looks like, you know, um, I know my father's going to laugh my son when he says, but I didn't do nothing. I didn't do nothing when they're, when they're fighting and wrestling. I didn't do nothing. I didn't do nothing. And he started it. So we, we we're looking at God like, but I didn't do nothing, but I didn't do nothing. Our conversations with God during our suffering are around declaring our own innocence and questioning, not just the justice of God, of God there. We're not just questioning. I'm saying it again, the, ju the justice of God, but we leap into a place of accusation. Now, now we're accusing him. Now we're accusing him. Now we're making him, we're making God the enemy. We're making God the enemy. And if we're not making God the enemy, we're accusing everybody else. It's everybody else's fault. When we could, when we could simply put, just bow to humility and wait for God to reveal himself and his purpose. Just wait on it. Just wait on it. Just wait on it. And we, 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 we do too, we do too much when we're suffering, when we're, when we're in the midst of a trial, we talk too much. When, if we just get quiet, as I was taught in school, if we just get quiet, we could hear the instruction of God. We could hear God telling us and directing our footsteps so that our fit doesn't, so that our foot doesn't slip. So that it doesn't slip. Most of the time our foot slip because we're busy looking at what the enemy is doing and we're busy accusing God and we just fall right off the step. Just right off our foot just falls right off because we're so busy, so busy trying to justify, trying to justify ourselves in the middle of a trial, in the middle of of tribulation. The testing of our faith is an individual and it's a personal testing. Yes, there are uncontrollable forces that come against us, but we have to understand that God allows it. Family, friends, and other sources of strength, they could be taken away from us. They may be taken away from us because God wants us to walk through it with him and him alone in him alone. See, sometimes we feel like we are left alone in the battle. I'm talking to leaders now. You, you feel like you're left alone in the battle, but could it be that God just wants you to silence? He wants you at a point, a place of silence so that you can hear his instruction so that you can hear his instruction. Maybe he don't want you to hear anyone else talking to you, for you, about you. Maybe he just wants you to hear him. Maybe he just wants you to draw nigh unto him. 
How about that? How about that? How about if we move away from the comforting words and touches of people and come to a place where we expect that comfort from God alone? alone. See, we're focusing today on um, Elihu because although he speaks from his understanding of um, God punishing sin, which is really what he was trying to say, his speech, his speech was more of giving us understanding of um, worldly consciousness and ex as exercise in suffering and transitions uh, our consciousness to a place of faith. See, let me switch gears. I said the wrong name there. Eliaphaz. He was the one. He was speaking that God was punishing Job from sin, from a mean of, from a place of sin, from Job's sin. But his speech did help us to understand the worldly consciousness as exercise in suffering, transitions, in suffering and transitions. It transitions our consciousness to a place of faith through a place of faith. See, because even if you did believe that God, even if you're convinced that God is punishing you for a sin, wouldn't you want to humble yourself? Wouldn't you want to humble yourself and repent so that faith again could have that resting place, that resting place. See, Eliaphaz, he takes up earlier that Job is essentially, he's telling Job that you're a pious man. You're a pious man. And in verses, uh, in chapter four, in verses two through six, and he's um, recommends that Job be patient. He says, if I were you, I'd leave my cause in God's hand. So even if you did think, even if you do think that your place of suffering is coming from God and from a place of sin, because of a sin, leave your cause in God's hand. Would it hurt to repent, to humble yourself and repent and make room for faith and make room for faith? Because Eliphaz says, for he is a the great reverser of fortunes, 11 and 11 through 16. In this description of God's working, he, he, he's getting carried away. Eliphaz is kind of going on on. And what he's saying, a lot of it doesn't even apply to Job and where Job is at at this time. However, the point of connection is that low, whether you're low, whether you're needy, you can have hope in God. And you can hope that God can, you can hope and have hope in God that he is going to change your current circumstance. He, he unintentionally prophesied to Job a turnaround when he says in chapter 20 and um, verse five, and I'm sorry, in chapter five, verse 20, in famine, he will redeem you from death in war. He'll redeem you from the power of the sword. In verse 21, he says, you shall be hidden from the lash of the tongue and shall not fear destruction when it comes. And then he says, in verse 22, at destruction and famine, you're going to laugh and shall not fear the beast of the earth for you shall be in a league with the stones of the field and the beast of the field will be at peace with you. He's telling Job, you shall know your tent is at peace and you shall inspect your fold and nothing will be missing. You shall also know that your offsprings will be many and your descendants as the grass of the earth. You shall come to your grave in a ripe old age like the sheep gathered up in his season. Behold, this we have searched out 
he says, Eliaphaz says, and it is true here and know it for your good. So we see here that after, after saying that, when we see in chapter 42, Job does repent and he ends up having to pray for his friends and their, and how they, how they guided him with their words. He had to pray for them and they had to bring him basically, uh, I, I'll call it a sacrificial offering. And we see that Eliaphaz's words in the and the part that he was referring to of restoration did actually come to pass. Job was blessed again. Job had more than enough again. Job had wives, sons, and daughters again. Job had provision again. And ladies and gentlemen, we are referring, as I said earlier, to the sustained society. That society understands that troubles will not last always. A lack of lack of poverty um that will not last always god will provide to be a member to be a member of the sustained society that it would be that society who leans who leans on Christ, who leans on the truth of God's words, no matter the situation or the circumstance. Those people, that sustained society would be those people that 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 lean not to their own understanding, but they acknowledge God in all of their ways. Though That would be that sustained society. That would be those people that no matter what comes with no matter what comes their eyes are fixed like a flint on Christ they're not looking to the left they're not looking to the right they they are they are uh, focused on the promises of Christ the yay and the amen of Christ and they understand they understand that provision is indeed their portion a society again is that nation they're unified by the same belief the same truths the same truths in Christ and the same faith their expectation their expectation is of Christ their expectation is of Christ I'm asking you today to consider to consider the sustained, the sustained society, the sustained society. Consider your truths. Consider, consider your truths and make sure that your truths are aligned with the truth of God and make sure that your faith, see, because if your truths are not aligned, your faith will have no place to rest. Your faith will have no place to rest. So if you're shaken today by what's going on around you, if you're having a problem focusing, if if your struggle is causing you to make God your adversary rather than your advocate, then you need to check your truths because your faith has no place to rest. Your truths, your truths cannot be indeed the truth of the true and the living God. We must align ourselves, align ourselves with the true and living God. We must understand our place and our position in God in our struggles. 
in our struggles because I'm here to tell you the struggle is not over. The struggle is not over. There is more to come. I would love to talk to you about the blessings of God because they're coming. I would love to talk to you about the more than enough of God because they are indeed coming. But the suffering way is here right now. And the suffering way is coming first. The suffering way is coming first. We, God is not done with us yet. God is not finished with us yet. We must align ourselves to his will and his purpose. We must align ourselves to have a mindset of a sustained society, a society, a nation, a people that God himself allows to lean on him, allows to rest in him. He covers, he hides us in his bosom. He lifts us up with his right hand so that we just stand in place. He holds us in place with his right hand. There are, our heavenly father has promised never to leave us, never to forsake us, no matter what comes. And in order to be a member, a, a car carrying member of the sustained society, our truths must align with the truth that Job has taught us today. The truth that Job has taught us today, that God is greater. He's greater than any human being. He doesn't owe us an explanation. His ways are beyond our ways. We could never comprehend his ways. We could never comprehend his wise, but we can comprehend the lessons that he has for us. We must learn from our suffering. We must have faith in God. We must have faith in God and we must address, approach God with an attitude, an attitude of humility, of humility so that, so that God will lend an ear, lend an ear to us and hear us and answer our call. We must get silent before God so we can hear the still small voice of the gentleman that is the Holy Spirit that will lead us and guide us, that will lead us and guide us in the path that God has set for us. Don't be afraid of the struggling way. Don't be afraid of the suffering way. This is a narrow place that we are going through right now. And as I've said to someone else, I can't afford to have anyone in front of me or behind me that's flailing, that's flailing in their faith, that's flailing in their faith. We need, God is calling for a people that will be firm, Firm in their faith, firm in what they believe, firm, firm in their understanding that God is all-knowing and all-powerful and that he has us resting in the palm of his hand, in the palm of his hand. Remember now, we're not going to make Jesus Christ our adversary. He is our advocate. He is our advocate. Know who the enemy is. Know who your enemy is. It's not Christ. 
It is not Christ. It is not the believers of Christ. It's not the called out of Christ. It is not, it is not your, it is not the, the person that it, that has led you and taught you in the ways of Christ. They are not your enemy. They are not your enemy. Come on, let's not lean to our own understanding, but we must acknowledge Christ in all of our ways. Let's pray. God, in the name of Jesus, we thank you today, God, that you have made us a sustained society. Our belief is in you. Our hope is in you. Our trust is in you. Our faith is in you, God, because we love you. Because we love you. We trust you with all our entire being. We trust you, God, with our entire being, God. We trust you with our thoughts. We trust you, oh God, with our heart. We trust you, oh God, with our will. We trust you, oh God, with our purpose, God, because you have promised to never leave us. You've promised, oh God, that you would never forsake us. You've promised us, oh God, that you are sitting right next, God Jesus, to our Heavenly Father, and you are interceding for us daily. Our foot will not slip. Our foot will not slip. We will keep our eyes on you through this narrow place. We will remain calm through this narrow closed in space. We will remain calm. We will not make you our adversary, Lord God. For you indeed, you indeed, Lord Jesus, are our adversary. You are indeed are our advocate. You indeed are our advocate. You sit high and you look low. You see everything, everything about us concerns you. You're concerned with everything to the point where you have numbered the hairs on our head. God, you are a God that has never disappointed us. You've never disappointed us. You take care of us. We appreciate you. We love you. And in times where we don't understand, we worship you. We worship you. We sit in silence before you and we worship you as the King of Kings and as the Lord of Lords and as our Savior and as our Deliverer and as our King. We reverence you. Oh God, our Father. Oh God, our Father. Oh God, our Abba Father, Daddy God, we love you. We love you. We love you, God. And I ask you today, God, to comfort, to send your angels of comfort throughout throughout the world to those that are bereaved who have lost loved ones send your angels of comfort soothe them god soothe them god soothe them god dry their tears oh god dry their tears oh god let your perfect will god manifest in their lives right now god cause them god to to depend on you to lean on you god let their faith rest in you, God, in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Lord God. And in this time, God, of transition, in this time of turnover, God, protect, 
protect and shield and cover the minds of your people, oh God. With all that is happening in the world today, God, help us, God, to focus in on the still small voice of the gentleman that is the Holy Spirit that will lead us and guide us into truth and right standing in your word and in our relationship. We love you, God. We give you all glory, we give you all honor, and we give you all praise. You, O Lord God, are our high tower. You're our high tower, and you're our strength. You're our strength, and we trust you. All of our hope is in you. All of our hope is in you, and our peace rests. Our peace rests. Our peace comes to us and it rests. As we lean into you, as we lay into you, we cause our peace to come and rest. And we cause it to rest in us, on us, and through us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. I pray. Thank you, Lord God. I will see you all on next Monday at 7 p.m. Thank you so much for joining me on this evening. If you would like to sow into this broadcast, my cash app and PayPal is on the screen. Thank you for blessing us. We thank you for joining us on this evening, and we look forward to seeing you on next week, 7 p.m. See you then.